Well, we are continuing our journey through the Minor Prophets. Uh, this morning we've come as far as the book of Amos, which is what we're going to get into in just a, a moment. Have you ever had one of those moments where you look at the clock and you suddenly double take because it's not the time you thought it was? I mean, that may have happened to some of you this morning with obviously the clocks changing. Um, you know, often on a Sunday like this, we get people turn up early or in the spring, people turn up late, but we didn't. And that was good. But, you know, those moments where suddenly it's like it's either later than you thought it was and you were going somewhere and you're suddenly in a rush, um, you know. Um, certainly those with, with children, you know that happens frequently um, as you're delayed more than you intended to be. The book of Amos is just like that. The book of Amos is one of those moments in Scripture where you look and you suddenly realize that the time is later than we thought it was. We are closer to the Lord's return than we've ever been. Now, that's an obvious statement, but as we go through this, I think you'll see that just as this book was written to the people in Israel, at the time, of course, that Amos was living in the days of the kings that we'll discuss in a moment, it was a wake-up call to them. The judgment was coming. That God was not going to play around. That God was going to bring his wrath upon the nation because of their disobedience. And just so, it applies to our time now as we look at what's going on in the world. And you'll see quite dramatically, I believe, in the first couple of chapters, how these things really do fit into what's going on in our world today. And I think as I've been studying through this, getting ready for this morning, and as we go through this journey through Amos, that you'll see more and more that this really is a book for today. So, of course, with the um, layout of Scripture that we have of course, we've got the Torah, the law, the first five books of Moses. You've then got the historical books. Uh, of course, the historical books go through from the book of Joshua as they enter the land and then that time in the land through Judges, Ruth, and then through Samuel into the time of the kings and chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, of course, being post-exile. Um, we've then got the poetry books, uh, typically the five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Really useful books of instruction. So much wisdom uh, is in there, uh, in all of those books. And then we get into the major prophets, so-called simply because their writings are typically longer. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, because Lamentations comes in with Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel. And then we get on to that which we're looking at now, which is the minor prophets. And as we've already said, it's not a term that means that they're any less significant or less important. Simply minor in terms that the quantity of their writing wasn't as great as generally the major prophets were. Um, so that's what we're looking at. Now, of these, just to go through again, uh, just helpful just to get a kind of an overview of what these books really are all about. Hosea, we've already studied and we've gone through. We've seen that really the theme there is that the Lord loves Israel despite her sin. And it's an amazing book. I absolutely loved teaching through Hosea. Uh, I think, you know, in fact, I've really enjoyed all of this journey so far. Uh, there's been a real freshness to this for me personally. Um, and there's elements of these books that I've not really delved into before or looked at. But going through Hosea, just seeing the compassion that Hosea showed to his unfaithful wife, and you realize the love that God has toward his people despite their sin. And then, of course, the book of Joel that we've just finished going through really just speaks of this judgment that is coming. It's going to come upon Israel. It's going to come upon the whole earth and of course, it's going to proceed or be the precedent to Israel's future revival. Israel will turn back to the Lord. And we saw that in the book of Joel. I believe the church has a significant part to play uh, in all of that. And particularly after the rapture, once we're in heaven, I believe that the Lord will use the church there uh, to intercede, the bride, to intercede on behalf of Israel, as we saw in chapter 2 of Joel. And so now we're going to move into the book of Amos, uh, and we're going to see that God is just and must judge sin. You know, that's an idea the world doesn't like, because the world likes to think it can get away with whatever it wants to do. That we can just live however we want to live. We can choose our own morality. We can choose our own uh, whatever, and that that's okay. And that actually we can kind of make God fit in with what we think should be right. And we can call God whatever we want to call God. That's the world's approach. That's what we see going on right now. Scripture has a very different view. God is God. God must be reverenced and worshipped. And his laws are just and right. God does not change his laws to fit in with popular opinion. Obadiah, we will move on to once we've finished in uh, Amos. 
And we see there as a sure retribution must overtake merciless pride. That's the theme that we see um, through the book of Obadiah. We'll go into these in detail when we're there, of course. Jonah, you're very familiar with, I'm sure, already. We've already taught it a couple of times here um, um, before. And the idea of grace is universal. It wasn't just for the Jews. The grace of God also extended to the Gentiles. And we see a great example of that in the book of Jonah. Uh, and there's a lot more that comes out of it as well. The book of Micah. Well, really, it's a book looking forward very much to the coming of the Messiah. Michael will tell us the town in which the Messiah will be born. He'll also tell us the exact location that the Messiah will be born. And no, it wasn't in a stable. If that comes as a bit of a shock to you, when we get to Christmas, we'll go through it again, because I think it's such an important lesson to understand as we go through and you look at two really important issues that most people completely miss. Marla was out there shopping uh, briefly last week. Uh, once they'd got out over COVID and they got released and they were allowed to get out of the house, just uh, they went there's the, the new um, is it home bargains or whatever down uh, down haven't, and uh, so they, they went in and had a look around and they had obviously lots of Christmas things as typically shops do this time of year. Um, and they had like a nice manger scene, and she uh, just texted me with her laughing faces, just you know how wrong this is, and you know ninety percent of this scene was wrong. Um, and the world doesn't get it. The world is based everything it knows or thinks it knows on tradition. Of course, tradition, as Jesus said, makes the word of no effect. When you understand the reason that God chose the shepherds and the reason that God chose the magi, it makes so much sense of the whole of that Christmas message. It has to do with the first time Jesus came, he came as a lamb to pay the price for the sin of the world. That's why the shepherds were chosen. The second time Jesus comes, he will come as the king of kings. The shepherds arrive to, to acknowledge that Jesus is the sinless, perfect lamb of God. The magi arrive sometime later. They didn't all arrive at the same time. The magi, anything up to two years later, they arrive to acknowledge Jesus as the rightful king. And it all fits in with the whole plan of Scripture. It's not just some little trivial, quaint event that we kind of celebrate. It is the whole plan of Scripture all contained within that incredible narrative that we have. So we'll look at that a little closer to Christmas. But Micah is a great book because it gives us so much of the prophetic of what was going to come and is caused things that will still yet to be fulfilled as we go into that. Uh, Nahum is a book that speaks about the doom of Nineveh. Now Jonah, of course, preaches to them. They're saved. But Nahum then, sometime later will come and prophesy judgment upon them because despite the fact they repented at the preaching of Jonah, they then turned back. Habakkuk, what a great, great book Habakkuk is. Quoted in the New Testament a number of times, but at least on three specific occasions by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and also in the book of Hebrews. And I do believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. I know there's some contention, and I wouldn't get into a dispute with anybody in it. If you believe something different, that's fine. But we have that verse from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And each of those books are based around the principle that comes out of that. The book of Romans deals with the just. The book of Galatians deals with the living part. How do we live the life? And then the book of Hebrews, the whole idea of faith. The just shall live by faith. Those three books present a trilogy based upon Habakkuk 2.4. So we'll look into those things when we get there. Because Zephaniah, another book that really focuses very much on the coming day of the Lord. And again, if you're not familiar with that expression, hopefully by now you are. The day of the Lord is not just some random term. It's a term that is used repeatedly through the Bible, Old and New Testament. And it refers specifically to the time of judgment that is ahead of us. And when you talk about the, the tribulation that is coming, there's a seven-year period of history that is yet ahead of us. And that is very much what this day of the Lord is referring to. The book of Haggai. Love the book of Haggai. Consider your ways. Just a, a couple of chapters and yet so much information, so much rebuke and teaching and instruction and encouragement. You know, the people had come back from exile and they were getting on with life. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? That's what we do, isn't it? You know, we've got to look after ourselves and provide for ourselves and so on. And God stops them in their tracks and says, you're building your own houses. What about my house? You know, what about the Lord's house? And it's a lesson to all of us. You know, we can get so caught up in the, the practical nature of life that we forget to focus on the things of God. 
great, great study. We'll enjoy that when we get there. And Zechariah, of course, very much focusing on repentant Israel, seeing their Messiah again. And some interesting things in that book prophetically that we'll enjoy, no doubt, when we get there. And then finally, again, if the Lord tarries and we get a chance to go through all of these, we'll get to Malachi. Uh, and that the judgment is certain for the wicked. And lots of wonderful truths come out of Malachi's short book as well. So that's that's what we've got ahead of us in terms of the studies and a little bit of what we've already done. From a chronological perspective, you can see roughly, uh, don't uh, make too much of these dates, but it gives you a rough time frame of when these things occurred. Uh, we've already gone through looking at Joel, the earliest, the first of the prophets, which is significant because he covers so much of the time frame, uh, looking forward of what's going to happen. Uh, Amos, who we'll be dealing with uh, this morning, Hosea, we've already seen. So you see that Amos, Hosea, all around the same time, uh, and so on. Isaiah also was in that same, roughly that same time frame. We'll see in a minute. Um, so you, you get the idea of roughly when these things occurred. Hosea, somewhere in the region, uh, about 793 to 722 BC. Joel, as I said, earlier than that. And then Amos, around about 765 BC onwards. Okay, so 765 years before Jesus came. Just a couple of really important markers time-wise. 722 BC, that's when the Assyrians, so somewhere in, in here, around about this point, um, 722 BC was when the Assyrians came and captured the northern kingdom and took them away. And then 606 BC, almost 100 years later, uh, 606 BC is when Babylon then comes upon the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and takes them away. It's the first of three sieges. So there's two points, 722 BC and 606 BC. It's important dates from a chronological point of view, just so you understand where they fit together. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go through just looking a little bit about Amos, uh, what we know about him, and uh, just kind of set ourselves up for this study. So just reading from uh, William MacDonald from the Believer's Bible Commentary. He just said this, uh, the book of Amos is written in some of the finest Old Testament Hebrew style. Amos was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore trees. Perhaps he illustrates the appearance of God-ordained men throughout history who speak very effectively and even beautifully for the Lord without the traditional school of the prophets, background or formal education so much sought after today. Now, just to clarify that, at the time that Amos was speaking these things and writing these things down, there was in Israel the school of the prophets. It was like a Bible college, if you like, for the Jews, for the Hebrews, for the, uh, those who were being educated uh, in the things of God. Uh, many of the Levites in, ended up in this uh, and so on. Uh, and we see that Amos had nothing to do with that. And yet the Lord chooses him. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't called as a prophet. He was just simply a chap that had a day job that spoke for God. And there's a lot that we'll see that will come out of just the, the ordinariness of his life. <clears throat> In the first two chapters, we're going to see Amos pronounce judgment on eight nations. And this is what we'll get through this morning. Again, William McDonald says this, Each pronouncement of judgment is introduced by the words, for three transgressions and for four. Baxter explains this Hebrew idiom for us. This phrase is not to be taken arithmetically uh, to mean a literal three and then four, but idiomatically as meaning that the measure was full and more than full. Okay, so as we go through this, you're going to see that expression for three transgressions and for four. It's simply saying that they, they'd reached that tipping point and gone beyond it. Um, the sin of these people had overreached itself, or to put it uh, in an allowable bit of modern slang, they had gone one too many. They had tipped the scale. All right, so you'll see when we get to those, that's what this means. Now, the key verses that we're going to see in Amos, uh, chapter 5, verse 24, but let justice roll down as streams and righteousness as a mighty stream. Uh, you may recognize that from some of the worship songs we sing. That's used uh, then in chapter 8, verse 2. Then said Jehovah unto me, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. In other words, God is no longer going to just overlook their, their, their sin, their transgression. It is time now for judgment to come. You know, and that, in a sense, becomes that warning to us that God is not a God that will passively sit by forever. You know, Peter makes the point that, that God is long-suffering, but we do 
a great disservice to ourselves and others if we have this mindset that, that God is not bothered. That God will just let things carry on as they are. No, God will bring judgment and we are getting closer and closer to the edge. The key word, therefore, that comes out of this study will be punishment. Uh, we'll see it recurring time and time again as God just reminds us that he is not a God to be mocked. The key phrase, thus says Jehovah. This isn't Amos' idea. He didn't just come up with this. This is God speaking to this ordinary man and just saying, I want you to speak to people. I want you to tell them, this is the message I want you to give. And no doubt Amos probably felt a little bit uncomfortable at times with these messages he's bringing, feeling probably out of his depth. And yet, as with all of the people that wrote in Scripture, that we have these records of, they were obedient, they were faithful. The key thought that comes through this is that God's justice demands punishment upon Israel for their injustice. You know, that's a really key thought, because if God is God, we want God to be good. And if God is good, then God must be just. You can't have a good God who is not just, otherwise that God is not good. God's goodness demands that he's a God of justice. What kind of father would I be if somebody wronged my children and I sat passively by and did nothing? That wouldn't show any goodness at all. Now, as their father, I am to stand up for them. I am to, to fight for them and to defend them. And we've had issues with the school, both this school and with Mala school at times, that I've had to get involved in. And I won't sat, passively sit by. But that comes out of that heart of love. If I, as an earthly father, are like that, what is God like in regard to his ways, his people? You know, God is a good God but it demands that sin is punished. The key characters that we're going to see, well, really, we've only got the two here. Amos, of course, is this shepherd we're going to see, this tender of fig trees. He's commissioned by God to be a prophet to, the, to northern Israel, so to the northern kingdom. Amaziah is going to be on the, the other side of the ring, if you like. He's this corrupt priest of the shrine of Bethel. Now, you may have remembered, we've spoken about this in our study through Hosea, but Bethel and Dan, two locations in Israel. Uh, if you kind of picture your heads, the northern kingdom, Bethel's down the bottom of the northern half of Israel, and then Dan is right at the top. And this is where Jeroboam I, the individual who we're told in Scripture, the refrain is Jeroboam I, who caused Israel to sin. I mean, that's the, 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 what's on his tombstone, effectively. That's how he's remembered. And he led Israel into idolatry because at the time the kingdom divided after Solomon, if you remember Solomon, because of his falling away from the Lord, because of his love of all the things that God said, don't love those things, and yet he did. The kingdom was divided. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam comes and God commissions him and gives him this job, but says that he would bless him if he walked with him, and yet he doesn't. Jeroboam is concerned. Pride again steps in, and Jeroboam is concerned that if all the people go back down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices there, well, they might go, well, we're better off with Rehoboam anyway. Why do we need two kings? And so despite the fact that God had made him a promise, he decides he's going to set two new centers of worship up. And he creates these golden calves, just like it happened back in Exodus, as they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And they set up these calves, and he says, these are the gods you can worship. You can bring your sacrifices here. Of course, the Levites, the priests, go, no, we can't do that. And so the Levites end up coming back down towards Rehoboam. And so Jeroboam just says, well, anybody fancy being a priest? You know, the law made it very clear that the priests would come from the tribe of Levi. But Jeroboam says, well, if anybody fancies to go, you know, just, just, just see how you get on. And so he ends up appointing anybody that wants to do this job to become a priest. It's a bit like we've got in the, the church today in this country. You know, if anybody fancies a job, then, you know, well, yeah, go into the ministry. You know, it's, it's a good life and uh, so on. Sadly, so many that are in the ministry in this country don't even know the Lord, let alone Scripture. Stephen is going to quote from Amos, uh, 
in chapter, uh, for Amos chapter 5 uh, in Acts 7. Uh, we'll look at that when we get there. Uh, James also is going to quote from Amos uh, chapter 9 in Acts chapter 15. Again, we'll look at those quotes as and when we get there. But the, the point here, just going back to the uh, situation with Bethel, Bethel was one of those locations, and Amaziah was one of those corrupt priests that was leading the nation into idolatry. The author, well, it's quite simple because the Bible gives us these little clues. It says the words of Amos. Okay, so we know it's the words of Amos. Now, whether Amos actually wrote the words, whether the Lord used a different scribe, it's kind of irrelevant. It's the words of Amos and it's been recorded for us. It's God's word. God preserves his word. God's word's faithful and true. We can trust it. And we know, uh, so all we know is revealed in this book. We can see he was a native of Tekoa. So we don't know much about him, but he was a native of Tekoa. It's a small mountain village about 12 miles south of Jerusalem and 22 miles from Bethel. So although he lived in the southern kingdom, again, he was close enough to these things that God uses him to speak to the northern kingdom. We're told that it was a lonely, sparsely populated district. Uh, it was overlooking the wilderness of the Jordan Valley, uh, around the Dead Sea, about some 80 miles away from that point. So just give you some geographical uh, idea of where he came from. <coughs> just to, uh, to note here, his name means burden bearer. It's quite interesting because God himself is going to make the point that he is bearing the burden of Israel because of their iniquity. God is tolerating all these things that are abhorrent to him. And so he calls Amos, who from birth had been named Amos, and says, actually, you're the one that I want to use to represent to this nation the burden that I'm bearing. You are to be my burden bearer. Don't confuse him with Amos, who's the father of Isaiah. Uh, similar name, but slightly different spelling in the Hebrew and even in the English. Um, again, the fact that his father's name is not mentioned suggests that he was probably from a poor and possibly an obscure family. Certainly there's no lineage of note here. His occupation, we've already mentioned this, that he was a shepherd um, of an ugly type of sheep with fine wool called nukt. Okay, so uh, this was just from one of the commentaries. Uh, I'm not sure how you define an ugly sheep and a non-ugly sheep. Uh, I'm not sure who looks at a sheep and go, are oh, they really pretty? So, but it, there you go. That's, that's one of the commentaries made that comment. Uh, but it was also a dress of sycamore trees. Uh, and the, again, you have these poor quality figs called mulberry figs. That will come out uh, later in the study. You'll see a reference to that as well. Uh, the word dresser, by the way, uh, means pincher. The idea is that the unripe fruit had to be punctured to promote it to ripening. Uh, the fruit was there, was infested with insects. I don't quite like the sound of this, but apparently the fruit was, fruit was infested with insects and inedible until the top was punctured and so the insects could escape and then you could eat it. Not sure I want to eat it, but that's apparently what it means and that's why uh, this is what he did as part of his job, to puncture the fruit and, and so on. His ministry, uh, well, he was, as we said, he wasn't a prophet nor of the son of the prophets. Um, so he wasn't a professional in ministry in that sense. And again, that reference to the school of the prophets you'll find in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 3. But God specifically calls him for this mission. And we should be able to relate to him because of the days we live in, the days he lived in, a lot of similarities, and even his own life. He was just an ordinary person. No specific qualifications. He wasn't part of the royal family. Again, he wasn't descended from a long lineage of priests. Just an ordinary chap. And God says... I want you to give a message. Another commentator, G. Finley, said this, Amos, a son of the wilderness, a man of granite make, stern, fearless, self-contained, of powerful, well-knit mind, vivid imagination, and lofty bearing. But, you know, those are all true statements, as you see, as we start to see his character come through. But it's because this is what God had done in his life. God had made him the kind of character he was because of the message that God was going to bring through him. He was deeply devoted to God and his law. This was one of the things that really struck me. You know, we, we see it with all of the, the prophets. They loved God. They loved God's word. And that's why God used them. You know, there is so much in Scripture that speaks of the importance of your relationship to God's word. And if you love God's word, if you cherish God's word, be certain that God will use you. God will use you to speak his word to others. 
We're going to note that Amos particularly seems to like Deuteronomy. He repeats it or quotes from it a number of times. You can see some of the references there. His preaching was blunt, courageous, powerful, uh, and he came preaching repentance. That the people needed to turn to the Lord. That they needed to, to make a, an about turn. The path they were going was not leading God's way. God has testified in his word. Just as, as a quick aside, I'm going through and coming towards an end now of this study I've been doing in Psalm 119. There's seven different words we have uh, in the Hebrew that refer to God's word. Statutes, judgments, testimonies, and so on. Testimonies has, carries this idea of something God has testified to. Okay, it's a little bit like you have gone on a journey, you have seen certain things, and then you tell somebody else of that, you're testifying and telling them, and they should trust you because you've been on the journey, you've seen it. That's a little bit, that's the idea. That God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. So he gives us the benefit of his wisdom because he's outside of time. It's different than his law, his statutes, judgments, and so on. Those are direct commands or whatever, or statutes that the Lord gives us. But the testament, it seems to be more of this uh, God's wisdom that we can take or leave because we are in life presented with choices. We're given chances to obey or disobey or and so on. But we often find we're in a position where we have a number of options before us. And there's no, no there's not necessarily a right or a wrong. Those are the hard ones. You know, when God clearly says, don't do this, don't do that, that's, that's okay. I mean, that's just either obedience or disobedience. But when it comes to a choice and we don't know quite which path to go down, that's where God's testimonies come in. That's where we have to search God's word and see the wisdom that God has given us, where he tells us what is ahead on that path. We might not be able to see it. Do you remember the situation in the book of Acts where Paul said to the people on the ship when he was captive, you know, we we shouldn't sail, we shouldn't leave the harbor, because if we do, I I know that something bad is going to happen. And people are looking out and going, it's a beautiful day, look, the weather's calm, the sea looks lovely, we're going. And what happens? Well, within a day, they're in the midst of this terrible storm and they end up shipwrecked. That's the situation, you know, that we may look out and a particular path ahead of us may look wonderful. It may look clear. It may look free of any problem. Yeah, we're going to choose that particular way. But that's where we need God's testimonies because God, who is outside of time, says, no, that's not the path. And that's where we need the wisdom and that relationship with him, that, that relationship with his Holy Spirit where he can speak to us. And even though something doesn't make sense, you know, this is a way, why shouldn't I go that way? I'm I'm, I'm there in my own life at the moment. The number of times I've, the the choice to do this, which seems so obvious, is right before me. And yet the Lord has been saying to me, wait, wait. It's the Lord's testing this. The Lord's just saying, I know what's down that path. Don't go down that path. Go down this one. So, again, we see that uh, he preaches repentance. He's saying to them, look, if you carry on down that path, that's what's awaiting you. That's what's coming. He's been called the plumb line preacher. Uh, and uh, he's also referred to by some as the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. Um, John Wadley said this. He said he was educated and a first-rate orator uh, using the Hebrew without blemish. Politically, just to give you an idea of what was going on at the time that Amos is speaking to us, Assyria had long been casting a lustful eye at the rich lands of Israel. Jeroboam II had become king, the northern kingdom, in about 783, and he ruled as a military despot. Uzziah had become king of Judah in the southern kingdom, about 786 BC, and both kingdoms enjoyed success and prosperity, both politically and economically. The problem is people associate success with being on the right path, and it's not always the case. Socially, well, with the prosperity, you see, it starts straight away to see the comparisons with today. It came luxury and corruption in government, and of course justice being not justice, both domestically and morally, and the poor were crushed and abused by the greed of the wealthy. Isn't that just what we see going on around us today? From a religious perspective within the land, religion had degenerated into a commercial racket, which kind of remained the same, even up to the time of Jesus, Jesus turning the tables over in the temple. 
Jehovah had been reduced to the level of a pagan god in the public mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering to think about this, that that's how many people in Israel saw Jehovah. It was just, he was just another one of the gods. The, the groundswell of opinion had been so persuasive in leading people away that they'd forgotten all about the things that God had accomplished, the exodus, the conquest of Canaan, even the times of David and defeating the Philistines and so on. And now God was just one of a number of gods, but they'd chosen their pagan gods already. And the impact, well, the only impact on their religion had on their, their daily life was bad. It corrupted them rather than strengthened them because it was religion, it wasn't relationship. So Amos's mission was to go to Bethel, this religious center of the north, and proclaim the doom of the nation. Okay, simply that Israel are going to be destroyed and nothing can now avert it. Imagine going with that kind of message. You know, he's from the southern kingdom, but he goes to the north, just stepping over the border effectively, gets to Bethel, surrounded by this idolatry, and he speaks out for God. I mean, it's easy to read these things and forget the the challenge, the way he must have felt, that um, apprehension in his heart. What are they going to say? How are they going to treat me? You know, will anybody listen? But God never asks us to be successful in ministry, just obedient. God will deal with the results. And we find that Amos's predictions, many of them came true within 30 years of his speaking. People didn't have to wait long to find out that which he said was true. It was from God. We said already that Bethel was just about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, it was the chief national religious shrine. Again, we said earlier where Jeroboam had placed that golden calf. It was especially sacred because Jacob, uh, way back in Genesis there, had, had his dream about that ladder that goes into heaven and so on. So it was a very significant place in the nation's history. Uh, it was sort of already time of writing, around about 765 BC, uh, contemporary with Hosea in the north and Micah and Isaiah in the south. So both Hosea and Amos speaking to the same people at the same time. God really trying to communicate not only his love for them, but the reality that judgment was coming. Again, John Wadey said this, uh, the words of Amos can be understood in light of his social, economic, and historical background. You know, when you just get a picture of what was going on, you kind of get the idea of the, the people he was speaking to, what it was like, the apathy regarding things of God, and the reluctance of people to listen. Some interesting reasons for writing. So, firstly, to announce the coming judgment upon Israel because of their idolatry and sin. To make plain to the people of Israel what the demands of God's service truly are. To remind Israel that God cares for all nations and exercises sovereignty over them. To show that all nations are expected to respect such basic rules of human conduct and integrity, honesty, purity and fairness. To show that cruel, inhuman treatment of one's neighbor will negate all worship no matter how elaborate. You can't treat people however you like and then go to God and think everything's okay. To remind Israel of Jehovah's fairness to his covenant and law and their accountability to a practical observance thereof. The first two chapters then, we're going to see the promised judgments of eight nations, chapters 3 through 6, the guilt and punishment of Israel itself, and chapter 7 through 9, the symbols of approaching judgment, and then finally, the future restoration of Israel. You see, one of the interesting themes that we find with all of these prophets is they all speak of that future restoration. Despite the judgment that was definitely coming upon them and did come upon them, God always speaks with hope. For those that either repent or ultimately, because of God's faithfulness, to his own promises. We're going to see God prophesying judgment upon Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, which you and I know today as Lebanon, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. And you can imagine as Amos rolls up on the scene in Bethel and starts pronouncing this stuff, people were going, well, that's good. Yeah, God, yeah, they, they need to be judged. And then Amos speaks of judgment upon Judah and Israel. And that wasn't quite so comfortable. 
So let's jump into chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We don't know anything significantly about this earthquake, but Isaiah mentions it also, so clearly it was something that was uh, noted at the time, as big earthquakes tend to be. David Guzik makes this comment. It seems Amos had no formal theological or prophetic training. Though there was a school of the prophets known as the sons of the prophets at that time, Amos was a simple man, a farmer who'd been uniquely called to ministry. And as we've said already, God can use anyone from anywhere. In chapter 7, Amos says this, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Just imagine you're just out working one day and God says, I'm only going to speak and declare my word. <clears throat> now, the nation had been divided by uh, this time for about 150 years. So from the time of uh, after Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the split of the kingdom. And the Jeroboam we're referring to now is Jeroboam the second. There's two Jeroboams. This is one sometime later on you'll see in a second. For about 100 years after that, God had been relatively silent. As the nation had started moving further and further away from God, God had sent a few prophets. There had been a prophet that had gone up to Jeroboam the first in Bethel. An interesting account in Kings uh, about that. But relatively speaking, God hadn't said a lot. And now, suddenly, God starts sending his people to warn. It had got to that point, as I said, a little bit like, it just gets to that kind of tipping point, and now God sends his people in and brings the warning of impending judgment through his servants. And just as earthquakes preceded the real judgment, they also served as the beginning of sorrow's marker at that time. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus says of our time, that there will be earthquakes and famines and pestilences and so on and wars and rumors of wars. And they're going to be just the beginnings of sorrows. Well, it's exactly the same in Amos' day. There'd been a few telltale signs that things weren't quite right. Of course, people would have been talking about the environment and what we must do, even back then. You know, must be man's fault. This has happened. That's happened. Yeah, but God had allowed whatever reasons, whatever things had happened, to start to unsettle people, and then into that He sends His word through His prophets. So, just looking at the history of the kings. Of Judas, this is the southern kingdom. This is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, all the way down. The green ones are the good kings. Sadly, there's only five of them. They go all the way down. And this is where we are, the time of Uzziah, or Azariah, the king. He reigns for 52 years. Okay, Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos uh, ministered during that period of time. Okay, so that's where we are. It's the same uh, Uzziah that we read of in Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the same king. On there. When we look at the northern kingdom, this is Israel, this is the Jeroboam. So that's the first Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused all Israel to sin. And then we have this constant changing of dynasty all the way through. And then we get down to Jeroboam. He was actually one of the descendants, one of the, the four generations that followed after Jehu. Jehu had been promised by God that descendants up to the fourth generation would sit on the throne because of his obedience to God, although he was then unfaithful. And that's exactly what happened, although the last descendant in that line, only six months on the throne. But Jeroboam, we're not sure exactly how long he reigned, um, but it's during this time again. So this is the north and the south in comparison. Let's carry on. Verse 2, and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion. That's the first thing he says. The first prophetic utterance out of Amos' mouth is, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. I think it's fascinating that the first thing this prophet says who's coming to speak to these people about their condition is actually about us and our condition equally. Because this applies to us today. The Lord is going to roar from Zion. He is going to utter his voice from Jerusalem. And it's going to be very soon. And we're told in the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn. Now, in the context, the idea is, of course, that judgment was coming on the land. It was going to come from the Assyrians. It was going to later then going to come from the Babylonians, and they were going to lay waste to the land. And so the places where the shepherds worked, of course, Amos was part of that trade. Those places were going to be overrun, plowed up, 
They weren't going to be able to do their jobs. The places the shepherds were going to be mourning. And then this mention here of Carmel. And the top of Carmel shall wither. You know, it's interesting that we've got here this idea uh, of Carmel, because Carmel is a place where 450 idolatrous priests had gathered together in the days of Elijah. A bit of place of idolatry. And it seems as if it's speaking of that, and maybe just reminding them of those things that had been prior to this. But again, God is still on his throne. God has got everything on track, despite man's iniquity. Now, you see there that of the 121 prophetic verses, one of the commentaries kind of lists in this book we have, 117 have already been fulfilled. So this opening statement actually is one of those prophecies, one of the few that are still yet future. And yet, we see types of shadows throughout this. Once again, as we said, there was an earthquake that had occurred, the warning signs, and then the judgment comes. We have the same going on in our day. Same kind of pattern, same kind of picture. Just looking at the area we're looking at, uh, the, these nations that are going to be judged, the first one we're going to see mentioned to a moment is the area today that we call Syria, Damascus. The second one is going to be the area of Gaza, which we're familiar today because it's always on the news. It was the area of the Philistines. These, of course, historical enemies of Israel. The third one will be the area where today we would speak of as Lebanon or Phoenicia back in the day, and typically Tyre and Sidon, these two seaports that were next to each other. Then the kingdom of Edom down south, the kingdom of Ammon, and the kingdom of Moab in what is today the area of Jordan. So the first six, uh, judgment is going to be pronounced upon. But then, of course, Judah and Israel are going to be included. So let's just going to go through some of these just to get us into the book a little bit. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. The idea is, uh, I'm just going to read you one of the, the quotes here, uh, threshing sledges with iron, prongs or teeth, are probably a figure of speech implying extreme cruelty and utter thoroughness in the treatment of those who are oppressed. The, the, kind of the idea of going through and literally plowing through the land. But I will send a fire on the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadid. Again, these are the kings of Syria. And I will break uh, also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria should go into captivity unto curse, says the Lord. Now, that prophecy there was fulfilled uh, in 2 Kings 16.9. It's uh, just looking forward from this point. It says, So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried his people captive to Kerr, and killed Razin. So Amos prophesies it, and then in Kings we have recorded that it came to pass, just as was spoken. And that's the quote I just read a moment ago. But the interesting thing, as we look at these nations, is where they are today. That is Damascus today. That was literally to be, as it were, plowed over. And you can Google this, you go on. I mean, you look at anywhere pretty much in Syria, and the pictures are similar, and it's shocking, and it's saddening. But God had said that he was going to destroy this place, and it did happen back in the day, in the days of the Assyrians. And yet it's going on again today. And what I find interesting is that everything that was happening there is happening now. The next one is the judgment on Gaza, the area of the Philistines. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Eden. One of the commentators made the comment that they, they did it for sport. They, they were ruthless and they did it just for sport and then they sold their slaves to whoever just to get money in. He says, I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza which will devour the palaces thereof. Can't help but see that in today's Media reports, fire being rained down on Gaza. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, one of the principal cities of the Philistines, and him that holds the scepter from Ashkelon, another one. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, another one. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. This was the judgment that was pronounced upon them. 
One commentator just said this, the condemnation here is not against slavery in and of itself, just as the previous oracle was not against war in and of itself. The crime is not that soldiers were enslaved after being taken in battle, which was the standard practice, but that the Philistines used their temporary supremacy to enslave whole populations, soldiers and civilians, men and women, adults and children, young and old, for commercial profit. Gaza did not even need the slaves. She merely sold them to Eden for more money. That is just one picture of what's going on in Gaza today. See, in Amos' day, God spoke of judgment coming upon them, raining down upon them. And today we see the same thing. Just turn briefly with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 47, if you will. Again, we're going through our study in Jeremiah. And as it happens, I'm my personal study, I'm going through Jeremiah also at the moment. And I happened to read this this morning. I thought, well, thank you, Lord, because that was a scripture I was looking for the other day and I couldn't find it. Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. So Assyria had dealt with the first one we just looked at, and now we've got Egypt, Pharaoh, dealing with Gaza. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters rise up out of the north, and shall be an overflowing flood, and shall overflow in the land, and all that is therein, and the city, and them that dwell therein, uh, then this men shall, sorry, then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl at the noise of the stamping of the hooves and his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands, because of the day that cometh to spoil all the Philistines, Philistines uh, and it says to cut off also, notice here, time and Sidon, every helper that remaineth for the Lord will spoil the Philistines and the remnant of the country of Kaphtor. And he goes on, just speaking of this judgment. He'll go on in, verse, in chapter 48 of Jeremiah to speak about the judgment of Moab, which we'll get to in a second. But just again, to highlight that these things were fulfilled, they did happen just as Amos spoke. Uh, let's just go on to Tyre. There's a Tyre further up north on the seacoast. And today what we speak of is Lebanon. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. And remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send fire on the wall of Tyre, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Okay, David Guzik just said, the walls of a city were her defense and the strength. If the walls were burnt, the city was defeated. Well, what's going on in Tyre today, or Lebanon today? Well, that's a picture that you probably saw in your news uh, only a very short time ago. You remember this massive explosion that happened in the port that was there. You know, all these countries that are around Israel that Amos spoke of today are in turmoil. One comment on the BBC News report said this, Lebanon's economic crisis, it was said, it said, no food, no gas, no hope. I'm sure you heard again the other day that they've, they've run out of gas and there's a real energy problem uh, in the land and so on. And it starts to echo partly what's going on in this country, but not to the same extent. But you have to wonder where we're heading as well. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom or for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. See, God is saying, you know, enough. I'm going to bring judgment. It makes us think about today. Because he did not pursue his brother with the sword, Sorry, let me say that again. Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So speaking of the way that Edom had dealt with Israel, Jacob and Esau, yeah, Edom, Esau is the same. Descendants of Esau become Edom. And I will send a fire on Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Now, the book of Obadiah is entirely concerned with the judgment of Eden, so we'll deal with it more when we get there. Uh, and yet Eden, we do find from the book of Daniel, will be one of three places that will escape the reign of Antichrist. The judgment on Ammon. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. This is again part of their rituals, part of their worship. They worship this God that they used to offer sacrifice children to. And uh, again, as it's saying, we, we had that talk from uh, Dave Brennan a little while ago about abortion. Yeah, and you read things like this verse and you think, oh, that's just uncomfortable, isn't it? But we've got the same thing going on. Verse 14, but I will kindle a fire in the walls of Rebbe and it shall devour the palaces thereof. 
the shouting in the day of battle with the tempest in the day of the, of the whirlwind and their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together says the Lord. So there we are. We've got one more of that list to go in a second. But these are all these city-states, all these nations rather, um, that are having judgment pronounced upon them by the Lord. Judah and Israel are coming up. Let's just go into a little bit of chapter 2. I'm not going to do all of this because of the time this morning. But I just want to just do the first one here. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away thy punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. And I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kirioth, and Moab shall die with a tumult, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and I will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. We'll leave it there, because the next thing we see is that Amos turns his attention on Israel. The focus suddenly goes from these nations round about them, and you can imagine the people sitting around in Bethel as Amos arrives and, and saying these things, and almost applauding and kind of giving, here, here, yeah, this is great. And suddenly he says, yeah, but God's going to bring judgment on you too, for your sin. It's very easy to look at other people. You know, our, our sin always looks worse on other people, it's been said. You know, and this is the reality here. As we see as it goes on, God is going to speak to them, to Israel and to Judah. And the interesting thing is the reason that God gives them, and I'll let you read ahead. I won't say it now. I'll let you read ahead from verse 4 onwards. And look at the reason that God brings judgment upon Judah and Israel and then compare it to the reasons we've just been given for the Lord brought judgment on those other six nations. And it's fascinating. And it tells a real story and it brings some home truths. So we'll look at that next time. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father God, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to get to know Amos a little better. So at least when we get to heaven, we can say we read his book. Um, Lord, but may these things speak to our hearts. Lord, may we recognize that the days in which we live are so similar quite frighteningly so. But Lord, help us to understand, just ordinary people like Amos was, how we should respond to these things. And Lord, what message, if any, Lord, you would have us bring to those around us. Lord, there is going to be judgment on this world and those round about, but Lord, also on every individual. No one can escape the wrath of God. There is accountability that is required. Father, please help us to speak a message of hope a message of salvation while there is still yet time. Father, may we grow in grace in these things. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.